Lesson number four, helps ministry. The spirit of excellence or the attitude of excellence. And we cover this because it is so lacking in our region. I, I point out all the time, if, if I pastored in Atlanta, Georgia, I wouldn't have to teach this. If I pastored in Bel Air, not Michigan, but Hollywood, I wouldn't have to teach this. If I pastored in New York City, I probably wouldn't have to teach this. If I pastored in Washington, D.C., wouldn't have to cover this. If I pastored in Silicon Valley, where Apple is, and Tesla, electric car company, and IBM, and Hewlett, I wouldn't have to teach this. If I pastored in Orlando, I wouldn't have to teach this. But as it is, we pastor in the region whose capital city is the sixth poorest city in the nation. Poverty is not a dollar amount. It is an attitude. It's a philosophy. It's a mindset. And poverty says, well, isn't that good enough? And excellence says, no. Good enough is never good enough. There's always better. And so when we deal with the spirit of excellence, we're dealing with the opposite of an attitude of poverty. Poverty wants to just do the bare minimum that's required and maybe less than that if somebody else will come along and do it for me. We have to resist this because uh, excellence is the example and the standard the Bible sets. The Bible does not accept, accept or permit anything less than the best. All the offerings in the Old Testament were prescribed to be the very best you could give. It never was judged on what it looked like. It was never a judgment in comparison to other people. It was always the best you had. Whether it was the widow's mite, which was only two little pennies, which was better than all the thousands that the Pharisees gave, or whether it was the one little lamb that one man had, as opposed to the 10,000 that the corrupt man had. Excellence is always about you giving the very best that you have, and the next time it gets better. So our, our curriculum says, God the Father gave his very best to us in the perfect sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has set the standard, excellence. And the spirit of excellence is the opposite of the spirit of poverty. Poverty is an attitude. It is not a dollar amount. I have been in Zimbabwe, and there's actually a lady there that I'm still somewhat friends with online. Her name is Gamu. This woman lived in a three-room hut and had suffered some injustice by some European contractors and when she served in Afghanistan as a contractor during the Afghanistan conflict, and they had basically kicked her out, and she was exposing some stuff. She had been robbed of her family's wealth. Her family was very wealthy in Zimbabwe. Her parents were doctors. They both died. They lived in a mansion. She was college-educated. Her, her parents died when she was a teenager, and her uncle took over the estate and then kicked them out, her and her siblings. She put herself through college and then went on to do some contract work through the UN in Afghanistan as a Zimbabwean or Zim national. And she had to come home and she literally had nothing. So when we went to visit her in her home and pray for her, she had a three-room uh, mud hut. But I walked into that three-room mud hut. The, the, the grounds was immaculate. The mud was immaculate. The door was clean. You walk inside, she had a television and a computer on a dirt floor, a mat that was perfectly, she lived like she knew to live, though she didn't have the means to live like she used to live. And she was at the same time fighting a massive lawsuit against the UN, and she was working with international lawyers to rectify some of the injustices done to her for two years in Afghanistan by some UN nationals. But I remember walking in there and going, by the, by the monetary standard, she's worth nothing, 500 bucks a year. 
but this girl won't stay here long because she does not have poverty in her. She does not know poverty. But now on the other hand, you give somebody the lotto ticket and they say, I don't know what the average is. The average person that wins the lotto is broke within five or six years. Because you give money to poor people and they become poor. They squander it. And every time I teach this, I can't help thinking about the one time I watched the, one of the shows about, so we won the lottery, one of those reality shows. And there was the family that lived in a mobile home, nothing against a mobile home, perfectly good home if that's where you want to live. But they won millions of dollars in the lotto. So what did they do? Well, they bought their daughter's $1,000 dresses. They built a bigger deck around their mobile home. They bought a Lamborghini Diablo. And they still drove it on their gravel driveway. You know, Lamborghini Diablo has a ground clearance of about two inches. 57 stone has a diameter of about an inch and a half. <laughs> and they built a detachable garage. I thought, you just won millions of dollars and you blew it on the Lamborghini Diablo, probably a quarter million dollar car. You're buying your kids $1,000 dresses that they don't need and you're not investing in something better. You're not putting it in the stock market and they'll squander it and they'll be broke within three, four years because poverty is an attitude. It's not a dollar amount. And the opposite of poverty is excellence. Excellence requires faithfulness and hard work. The spirit of excellence says, I want to give the Lord Jesus my very best. It is the least I can do. Poverty requires you to stay the same and not improve or change anything. Let me give you a revelation. If you change nothing, nothing changes. <laughs> Hoping and wishing doesn't get anything done. You must put your hand to the plow and get after it. Now, I teach our church this on a regular basis. One of the strongest demon strongholds and spirits of our region is poverty, and it's right there, kin, hand in hand with laziness. I don't think I've ever seen a region quite as lazy as the Upper Cumberland. And it, it, it rains upon us constantly. I've lived in Pittsburgh, Baton Rouge, Knoxville, Seattle, Cookville, Oak Ridge, Knoxville, Oak Ridge, Knoxville, Indianapolis, Cookville. It's the laziest place I've ever lived in my entire life. It's the poorest place I've ever lived in my entire life. Immigrants come here and work a thousand times harder than the locals. Amen. Because they appreciate the opportunity they've been given, even if it's illegally. Because this is the general attitude of our region. Now, it may not be your attitude. But because it's the general attitude around us, it rains upon us. People who are quick moving will come here and automatically slow down because it's the attitude. Now, if you were born here, God help you because you don't know fast. To you, big city living's light speed. When you're from the big city, this is like watching slugs race. Amen. And so we have to fight this. Now, this offends a lot of people who are determined to go to heaven or hell poor and the same. But the Bible teaches us in Titus that the pastor's job is to confront the pagan culture of the land and to rebuke it sharply that people might be sound in the faith. And that's what we do here. In fact, we have a lot in common with the Cretans from Titus. Slow bellies. Lazy. So we have to confront that. If you know that's one of the strongholds here, you'll know to resist it. No doubt one of the strongholds of San Francisco is homosexuality. 
If you and I were to live in homosexuality, we would constantly be bombarded with thoughts and attitudes of sexual perversion. And I guarantee you the pastors that are there that are led by God, they're constantly feeding their congregations messages of sexual purity just to keep them washed. We don't have to teach that all the time here because we don't have a homosexual stronghold here. We have a lazy and a poverty stronghold here. And so we have to constantly buffet this thing and constantly charge this thing and constantly uh, rebuke this thing. The spirit of poverty loves laziness because it doesn't have to do anything. And I, I have done a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer, a lot of studies on this. I believe this culture developed here because of our geography and the religiosity. I point out that Christianity has been in our region for 200 years and you can't hardly tell it. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been here longer than it's been in Texas. You go to Dallas, you can feel God in Dallas. So many strong believers down there. One of the wealthiest cities and countries on the planet or states on the planet. We have just as much resources here, but we squander it through poverty. It's an attitude. I think we developed it here because of the hills and hollers. I love hills and hollers where you find the best caves and best rock climbing. But folks lived and they said, you, you, you keep your nose and your holler. I'll keep my nose and my holler. You, you don't judge me. I don't judge you. We'll see you at church on Sunday. And that just developed a regional culture that's just still here. No matter how many Indians come here, no matter how many Kuwaitis come here, no matter how many Mexicans come here. And the Mexicans say, hey, amigo, man, we can't understand the language. I say, man, I'm with you. I understand you better than I understand them. And I'm the same color as them. <laughs> Lacy, man. Lacy. <laughs> Poverty is easy, and this is why it abounds. Poverty often blames anything and everybody but itself, and then it looks for a handout. Poverty doesn't finish what it starts. Excellence honors God. It gets up early in the morning to honor God and to take care of God. Poverty only honors self. Poverty runs at its own pace. I've been to the third world countries and I have found third world conditions that rival it here in the Upper Cumberland. I have found homes that I thought there's no way it can be legal to live in that, much less to raise kids in that. And it is. Why don't you want better? Even government housing would be better than some of the stuff I've seen in the hills outside Overton County, in Putnam County, and White County, and Van Buren County. I mean, I wouldn't camp in some of the houses some of the people choose to live in. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, that wouldn't be my hunting cabin. I'd pitch a tent because it would be a higher standard of living than what I've seen in some of these areas. Oh, just go off any one of these country highways and find a gravel road that doesn't say no trespassing and just watch what you see. Amen. It's a spiritual stronghold here and we have to fight it. And if you know it, you'll resist it and better yourself. Now we teach it because it wants to creep into the church and it wants to serve Jesus half-hearted offerings. And that's just not gonna fly. You think it's good enough for you, must be good enough for God. God's going to look at it and say, I, like Cain, I don't accept that. I reject that offering. Well, why would you do that, Lord? It's good enough for me. It's not good enough for me. I taught you better than that. Yeah. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with thy might. One translation says, do it with all of your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, master it. Whatever that is. Even if your mastery isn't the best there is, it's the best you've got today. And tomorrow you'll master it and get better at it. Colossians 3, 23, 24. And whatsoever you do, do it 
heartily, not hardly. The upper Cumberland says we do it hardly. As unto the Lord. Not unto men. No, you do it heartily. That means with all of your heart. When you do something with all of your heart, you put everything you've got into it. And even if it isn't the world's best, it's the country's best. It's the community's best. It's your life's best. And the next time you do it, it'll be better. Knowing that the Lord, that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. We give these things to the Lord because it's unto him we serve. We serve the Lord Christ. We don't do it as unto men. Notice Paul recognizes that when you do something for man, you just half-heartedly do it. Because you understand man doesn't have the standard God does. But you should know the Lord is demanding something better of you. Our friend Reverend Ray Bench, he always preaches the story when he was working for Dr. Barclay. He said he was always falling behind. He was Dr. Barclay's field guy, set up meetings and appointments and airfare and travel and churches. And he just was not good at it. And, and he was doing his best. He was, he was like the chubby kid in gym class, just running, trying to keep an, you know, the last kid to finish the mile, just doing his best. And, and, you know, in America, A for effort. Yeah. <laughs> Try harder. But he, he, Dr. Barclay, he said, was just chewing him out because he fumbled again and fumbled again. He said, Dr. Barclay, sir, with all due respect, I'm doing my best. And Dr. Barclay said, that's your problem, Ray. This is your best. There's a problem when your best is where you stop. There's a problem. I'm doing my best. What, you're 30 and you don't think you can get better? You're 40, you, you, you can't get better? You, you, you let your best be the golden standard? You might say, this is the best I was able to do today, but you give me another couple days, it'll be better. He got rebuked. The Lord, I mean, what a slap. I'm glad to hear my pastor does it like I do it. That way I don't feel so hard. That's your problem, Ray. This is your best. And, and Reverend Bench said, you know what I did after that? I would come in early and crawl under my desk and pray and cry out to God and say, God, you've got to make me better. You've got to raise my standard. You've got to make me better. My best has got to be better because it's not good enough for my pastor. And I know my pastor doesn't have the same standard that the Lord does. We, we in the Upper Cumberland, we think, part Cumberland, part American. Well, I gave it my best. Certainly the Lord will blow up. He, re he receives my best. Yeah, but the problem is your best has been the, your best for 15 years. <laughs> Some point the best has to get better. <laughs> trying to swistle like I do it. <laughs> At some point, your best, it gets a little better. Our problem is, we say, it's, our, it's my best. That was your best when you were nine. <laughs> and you've not bothered to get better. That must insult, insult the Lord. You know, my best offering in college was five bucks. If that's my best offering today, I'm backslid. Uh, my best when I was in college was witnessing to everybody recklessly. Well, if I'm still a reckless evangelist, I have not improved any. The Lord accepted me where I was at. Like the kid who colors crayons and Santa Claus is purple with a green beard and it's your three-year-old's best. But when you're 25 and an art major and that's your best, you're either a millionaire because weirdos buy that kind of ugly art or you got issues. At some point, you learn to scribble in the lines and get the colors right. Amen. 
We should do everything as unto the Lord. So let's look at some excellent things that we need to do in the, in the local church in the ministry of helps. Excellence in appearance. Excellence in appearance has nothing to do with fashions or trends. Nice dress is defined differently all over the world. If you're in Southeast Asia, men wear a thing called a sarong, which is like a dude skirt. You come into my church wearing a dude skirt, we're going to cast the devil out of you. <laughs> you know, same in Scotland, they wear kilts. You know, wear a kilt if you want to. I, I honestly, I used to own a kilt. I used to go backpacking in a kilt. I actually went backpacking in 35 degrees stormy weather in a kilt because that's what hippie college kids do. And it rained the whole hike in. But it was a wool kilt, so it kept your legs, your thighs. <laughs> kept your thighs warm. Not your legs, but your thighs. <laughs> and like, a walking on, this was a dumb idea. It, sure, it is so expensive being a hippie. It is so expensive being a hippie. <laughs> no, nice dress is defined differently all over the world. <laughs> the Lord has delivered me from Seattle. Still a little bit left in me, not much though. It's defined differently. So we're not talking about suits and ties. We're not talking about dresses. You know, some churches, the women wear those nice flower hats. That's not our culture. It's what they do for something nice. Uh, it simply means you make your appearance your very best for your God. That may mean you wear the nicest jeans you have. It's not even about expensive clothing. You can buy $300 jeans that look like a tractor ran over them. I, I was at one of these little fancy shops and I went into their, their blue jean department and I was looking at $200 blue jeans. And I said, honey, number one, the only thing I have against these is they're skinny. And the only thing I have against skinny jeans is muscle because these ain't going to fit nothing on me. But I said, and they're 200 bucks. So I asked the gay guy who was running the shop. I said, sir, can you tell me why these jeans are $200? I mean, because I can buy Walmart jeans for 20 bucks and I have for years. And he said, what? I won't... I'll talk normal. <laughs> How did you know he was gay? Trust me. Got a pretty good beat on that one. He said, that is, a, that is a very tight woven denim that basically after a nuclear holocaust, the only thing will be left is cockroaches in those jeans. And I thought, well, that might be worth 200 bucks because I've been through 10 pairs of jeans in five or six years. That's $200. If these things would outlast it, it might be a good investment. Excellence is not about money spent because you can have a pair of jeans that cost more than a suit that look like they're horrible. So it's all about the nicest thing you have to offer. I, and I've shared this many times. It's the same story I used. I really caught a revelation of this when I was in court for somebody a couple years ago. And we were waiting for the, the, the folks we were there with their, their case to come up before the judge. And one of the cases had a farmer. And I could tell he was a farmer because he was in there in his best brand new pair of Liberty overalls. He had a button-up shirt, but he had on brand new Liberties. And knowing a farmer, farmer Liberty overalls don't stay brand new long. And I said, this man doesn't have a suit. He doesn't have a tie because he's an upper Cumberland farmer. I can spot him a mile away. But he came to honor the judge with his best liberties. And I guarantee you the judge has an eye for that. He can tell this farmer doesn't have a suit, but he's worn, to honor me in this courtroom, he's worn his best pair of overalls. You go down to Texas, they come to church with their best boots that might cost $500. And their belts that cost $200. And their rodeo buckles that are worth a grand. And denim jeans that are Wranglers that are 20 bucks, but they have a razor sharp crease down the front of them. 
and a Stetson shirt and a Stetson hat, and that's what they wear to church, and that's the best they've got. And they look ridiculous to us because we don't see that, and that's not our culture. So we're not talking about suits and ties, so don't misunderstand me. That's what we understand here in this part of the country. It's about giving the Lord your very best. We dress up for dates. We dress up for proms. We dress up for court. Why do we dress down for God? As I've explained and opined for years that we have successfully, and maybe not us, but other churches, we've made church the lowest point of the week in America. We go up for everything else all week. We go up for dinner. We go up to go out. We go up for the movies. We go up for work. I mean, even the guy that changes your oil has a uniform. The guy making your taco has a uniform. We come to church and we dress down. We slouch down. We sing down. We nacho barred and cappuccino it down. There's no excellence. There's no honor. Genesis 41, 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and he came in unto Pharaoh. Notice that Joseph, he very well knew the Egyptian culture and he's about to go honor the son. Actually, he's the son of God. He's the son king. He's the, he's the offspring of God. And what does he do? He shaves his beard. He grew a beard. He's in prison. What do you think his clothes smell like? Horrible. And you know, you know, you know your Egyptology. Have you ever seen an Egyptian with a beard? They're always smooth-faced. They seem to have despised hair. So he's going to present himself in the acceptable manner. Now, he doesn't have to. He's been in Pharaoh's prison. Pharaoh's forgotten about him. The baker and the butcher forgotten about him. He has every right to come in there smelling like the Pharaoh's underbelly and say, what do you want? Now you want me? Now, you should be glad I'm here. But he doesn't do that because he's got honor. So we don't know what he changed into, but it wasn't prison clothing. And we know he shaved his beard too to honor the king. And if Pharaoh can honor, I mean, if Joseph can honor the natural king who thought himself to be God, how much more can we not honor the king who is God and give him our very best? He didn't come in there dressed like a Pharaoh because he didn't have it, but he dressed better than where he had just come from. There was a difference in his appointment than how he was living week to week. If Joseph could shave and present himself before the presence of an earthly king in his official court, how much more should we clean, clean ourselves up when presenting ourselves before the king of kings in his official house? Excellence in appearance. That's why we buy these nice shirts that you don't have to wear your fancy clothes to work in the kid's wing, but you can at least have a nice little polo. And they look nice. You know, wear jeans if you want to, wear slacks, but you know, we want to we have some excellence about us. One of the things I try to do, it's a slick thing, I know I'm called to do it. I wonder, I think we can single-handedly raise the culture of the whole region. I am friends with so many pastors, I know I put pressure on them to do things better. I don't have to reach everybody in the Upper Cumberland. I can just be friends with all the pastors and they reach the people. And I raise the standard and they reach the people and slowly everything comes up. And that's not a pride thing. That's a, we raise the roof of the gospel the light shines further and people that don't even get it realize their lives are better. When, when the region's higher, people get born again easier. When the gospel's preached, when the standards proclaim, it's easier to get folks saved. And that's why we do this. Plus, we have to preach against the biggest problem in the land, which is religiosity and poverty. Excellence and stewardship. Stewardship is how well we take care of things. This region gets an F minus on that 
We are stewards over our bodies. Tennessee's one of the fattest states. I don't mean that to pick on anybody. We usually compete with Mississippi and Indiana and Alabama for the fattest states in the country. It's like a chubby trot. It's a chubby Olympics. Sometimes Indiana takes first. Sometimes Mississippi. Every once in a while, we get up and ring the bell. Then we go back and get something to eat. (laughs) It's how we take care of our bodies. Your body's a temple, right? Do you have permission to expand it? It's a joke. No, you don't have attention. Yeah, you got Now, you have to have to be disciplined. Excellence over how you carry yourself. Excellence in your bodies. Excellent in your marriages. Excellent in the gifts that you give. That doesn't mean expensive. You just don't give crummy gifts. You know, <laughs> Mr. Luke works at the, with the... Um, Rescue mission. He said, we had some cars given to us. One of them needs a transmission. All right, that's not a blessing. When a a car is gifted and it needs like the most expensive thing other than the engine, which is a transmission, that's not a blessing. That's not an excellent gift. That's a get it out of my driveway and give me a tax deduction for it. That's poverty. You'd have been better to go scrap it and bring the cash in hand because all you did was get rid of your own burden. And put it on somebody else. That's typical cookful giving. Belongings. Finances. Anything God has given you, he will require that you give an account for how you used it and what you did with it. Let, let me hit on this thing again. This, this poverty of body. You have to be a good steward over your body. I harp on this a lot. I've been criticized for fat shaming. I, I'm not trying to fat shame anybody. Your doctor will tell you you're too fat. Now they try to church it up. They call it obese. All right, that's worse to me than fat. You know, everybody's got fat. Obese means you're going to die. And they now say like 40% of America's obese. They call it the greatest epidemic we've got because with obesity comes a whole slew of health issues. Tumors can grow under that fat and you never know it. Your heart can't handle it. Your pancreas can't handle it. Your gallbladder, nothing. It all shuts down under that burden. You have to take care of yourself. There's a fruit called self-control. And literally, to be a leader in the kingdom of God, to be a bishop, you have to have the fruit of self-control. One translation calls it self-discipline. Amen. How can you preach on the fruit of the Spirit when you don't have any of them working in your life? You can probably get away with that once. Then you're either going to submit, repent, or you're going to never teach on the fruit of the Spirit again. Or just teach on the ones that don't convict you. Luke 12, 42 through 44 The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise steward? We're talking about the excellence in stewardship. Whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household. Notice when you're a wise and faithful steward, the Lord will make you ruler. He'll promote you. To give him their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Promotion is the reward for being a steward of excellence. You take care of your car, the Lord will reward you with the better one. You take care of your body, the Lord will reward you with health. You take care of your money, the Lord will reward you with more. You take care of your ministry of helps, the Lord will give you more leadership, more rulership over more stuff in the kingdom of God. If you're called to the ministry, how it works is you get busy in the ministry of helps and you become so faithful in a department, your department head says, I need your help. And you become so faithful there, the pastor looks and says, they're so good helping with that department, I'm going to give them their own department. I'm wasting them in that position. 
I'm wasting faithfulness and talent. And so then you put them over something else. Then they become so good there, you say, you know what? I need you in a a higher leadership position. I'm gonna make you a deacon. And then they prove themselves faithful there. And then you say, deacon, nothing. You need to be an elder in my church. And then they're so faithful there, the Lord says it's time for them to go do something greater. Give them their own work. All right, Lord, you show me how and we'll do it. That's how the kingdom works. But if you can't be found faithful over a department of helps, you're never gonna have anything. Plus, uh, you have to be able to master every arena of your life. Your flesh, your marriage, your family, and your money. Three arenas that you have to master in stewardship is yourself, your family, and your money. Nothing else. That's all of life. Yourself, your family, your money. If you don't have a family, rejoice. It just gives you two things you got to work on. Yourself and your money. You got your money tight? Great. That just leaves you. Amen. Amen. Promotion is the reward for being a steward of excellence. And the Lord wants to reward all of us. Excellence and a work ethic. We must work the best we can in everything we do, whether for God or for man. This comes back to if you'd work better for a paycheck, you're a hireling. We ought to do it because it's right and because it glorifies God, not because we make money doing it. Ephesians 6.6 6 says, not with eye service as men pleasers. You know, eye service is work hard. Here comes the boss. Uh, look, here comes pastor. Straighten up. Not with eye service as a man pleaser, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We might get out of there, but as the servants of Christ, knowing he's always looking. You know he's always watching over you. And he'll see in secret and make sure your boss promotes you. He'll see in secret and make sure your pastor promotes you. He'll see in secret and make sure your parents promote you. He'll make sure you get rewarded. He's not unfaithful to forget your labor of love. The only reason you wouldn't do a good or excellent job is because you have no heart for it. You have to develop a heart for it. Just because you don't have a heart for it doesn't mean you're excused from having to do it. We've been hearing a lot of messages on that lately. When your heart is really into something, you give it your best. You give it 110%. If you have no heart for it, you do it half-heartedly. You can tell they just, they didn't care much about this. It wasn't important to them. God deserves more than half-hearted service out of his servants. Dr. Barclay has a quote, performance proves the heart. When I see Christians skip on a regular basis, I'm convinced they have no heart for God. You can't convince me otherwise. Performance proves the heart. How would it seem to my wife if I never came home? Would it not say to her that I have no heart for her? No matter what cheap talk vomits out of my mouth. Well, it was a late night. It was just easier to sleep at the office or at the church. Well, I, I, got, I was up hanging out with the guys and I just crashed on their couch. Don't you think my wife would think I have no heart for her if I never came home? Don't you think the Lord feels the same way with the, the chronic church skipper? Convince me you have a heart for God by showing up. Overcome yourself. Break free from the gravitational pull of flesh and find yourself serving God. Colossians 3.22, servants, that's all of us. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Or we could say employees, obey in all things your bosses according to the natural. Not with eye service. Notice the Lord's nailing this eye service thing. We do so hard when, when the, the boss is around because it might, we, maybe we can deceive him. Not as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Notice we have to do everything with focus. Singleness of heart refers to a focus. This is what pleases God. 
Excellence requires a focused effort on whatever you're working on. This is singleness of heart. Faith focuses on the task at hand and faith is what it takes to please God. You know, the opposite of focus is, is distraction or laziness. One of the things our region lacks is focus. One of the things, Pastor Mike, was, we were talking about this a couple years ago, this region doesn't know how to finish anything because it's like, I'm working on this. Oh, but I, but I wanna work on this. Oh, oh but I wanna work on this. Uh, uh, um, but I wanna work on this. And before long, you waste all this time and you finish nothing. There's no singleness of heart. It's a distraction. It's an attention deficit disorder, except you're a grown man or a grown woman and you just can't focus with singleness of heart. But the Bible says you do that because you fear God. You have singleness of heart because you fear God. So whatever he gives you to do ties into our verse. Do it with all of your might. I work on this till it's done. If my mind thinks about this, I write it down. But I'm working on this till I'm done. And then I go to this and I'm gonna work on this till I'm done or until my time runs out and I'll come back tomorrow and pick up on it. This is excellence in work ethic. Your boss is looking for someone they can put over a job and they won't leave it till it's finished. Your boss is looking for someone they don't have to supervise. Don't you think the Christian should be the best employee on the job? One thing I have found though in pastoring now, self-employed people make the worst servants. I have found that self-employed people make the worst servants because they've lived their whole life not having to obey anybody but their own whims. I have found the best servants are former military, military and police. Those guys don't matter if they're 30 years older than me. They come in, sir, yes, sir. They don't see age. They just see rank. Give me a church full of former military because they just, police, they just get it. Everybody else who's worked for somebody their whole life, they understand. I just do what I'm told. They get it. But I have not, it doesn't have to be this way, but I find self-employed people pretty useless servants because they're the boss. They don't like to be told what to do. That's why they went into business for themselves. It's hard to be told what to do because I'm not told what to do at my job. All right, how much success are you having there? Maybe you should be told what to do. We have to get this. Not with eye service. Not with eye service refers to a two-faced lazy work ethic. Some will only work hard when the boss or the pastor is around. I saw one really heretical bumper sticker that says, work hard, Jesus is coming. As if to say, uh, you know, he's coming. You better act like you're doing something. Yeah. Another one I saw was just heresy setting. In case of rapture, can I have your car? As in, I'm not going, so can I have your car? Mm-hmm. All right, you're damned. You can drive it right to the Antichrist when he cuts your head off. Right. Yeah. Some thoughts on excellent work because this is so critical for the ministry of helps. We want to do everything we're given with as much excellence as possible. If leadership has to stand over you in order, this goes good on your job too, or your parents. If leadership has to stand over you in order to get work out of you, they are doing your job. If they are doing your job, why do they need you? I just, uh, I, I read the biography of Elon Musk, who is the South African genius who runs SpaceX Solar City and Tesla. And he is a brilliant physicist and entrepreneur. He runs two, actually he's part of three multi-billion dollar companies that are all less than 15 years old that he basically has built from scratch. And he works 110 hours a week. 
running three companies and he just flies from one to the other. One's in San Francisco and one's in LA and he flies between those two. The other one is his cousin's run. And they said of him, no is not an option when you work for Elon Musk in pioneering electric cars that do zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds that have a five and 600 mile range. No is not an option. And so he said, folks have come and complained to him and he'll look at him and say, fine, if you can't do it, I'll do it and for you. And I'll run $2 billion corporations at the same time and I'll do it in less time I gave you to do it. And he does it. And at that point, why does he need them? In the big controversial article this week, he said, I fire people and Apple hires them. He said, we joke in my company that Apple is the Tesla graveyard. That's a strong statement. <laughs> if, if someone's doing your job, why do they need you? On your job in the local church, etc. Joseph was so dependable and honorable with his job in prison that the prison boss never had to double check his work. We ought to get that way in the church. We ought to get that way in our home. We ought to get that way in the boss. Uh, on, the, on the place of employment. I'm telling you from personal experience, your boss is looking for someone he can depend on and not have to supervise. And when you're that person, he'll promote you and throw you money hand over fist. He wants somebody. He wants burdens off of him or her. He wants somebody he doesn't have to think about. He wants somebody that if he goes out of town for two weeks, he comes back and you're doing the last thing he told you to do and more. And then you got proactive and you had some downtime and so you went and organized the garage or you went and organized the Excel spreadsheets or you cleaned up the server because you just can't sit and do nothing. See, poverty has to be told what to do constantly. Clean up your room. Now make up your bed. And those, those go in the closet. Now that goes in the dirty clothes hammer. That's poverty. When you when you're, have excellence, you don't have to be told. You just know what to do. If paying you would cause you to do a better job for the kingdom of God, then you are a hireling and you might just get fired. If we truly loved and revered him, we would never give him our junk. We would never give him our junk. We've undertaken a lot of projects since I've pastored here and we've remodeled the sanctuary. We've remodeled the toy store next door. We've remodeled the kids wing. Most of it we've gutted and started from scratch and it's really taught me a lot. And you wouldn't believe how many times I've heard people say, well, it's just a church. What's the big deal? Why is pastor so anal about this? Because you're not. And I answer to God who you need to meet. Because I'm trying to raise your life. I'm trying to set a standard. I'm trying to show you what the kingdom's all about. I'm trying to tell you the world's bigger than Possum Holler. And Cook Vegas. And now, now. Yeah which is one of seven counties up here. I'm not sure which one. I can't keep them straight. <laughs> now, you wouldn't believe how many folks just did jackleg work till they learned excellence. And, and still, you know, I get really ticked off when I pay these local contractors to come in and I got to call them back to do a better job. I said, I'm tired of paying these guys a lot of money to do this twice. I didn't pay you 50 bucks an hour to have to jimmy rig it. I could have jimmy rigged it myself. But that's just the region we live in. We're called to change it. We don't look down our nose at it. We raise the standard and we teach them better. Sometimes you have to. You say, would you do this kind of crummy work for the president of the United States? You would. Well, you would never see him then. No, you wouldn't. Oh, I didn't think you would. So why are you doing it for Jesus? 
Well, this is just just this is just a local church. Yeah, with that mindset, you're not going anywhere fast. So here's some things that make for excellence, and we're almost done here. You guys have been so good. You guys are five times greater than the typical American church. You have endured four hours of teaching. The average American church gets 25 to 30 minutes a week because the liars tell them at the conferences they're stupid enough to pay money to go to that if you want to grow your church, the American Christian can't handle more than 25 or 30 minutes of word. I, that would offend me. You took my money and you told me that lie? Yeah. You guys have endured four hours of teaching. That's pretty awesome. That doesn't mean you can skip church tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm good for a month. Wait. Love. Love for the work of the ministry. Love for people. Love for one another. Love never fails. Love makes for excellence. When you're in love with a woman, do you buy her junk? Not if you want her to love you back. <laughs> no. I mean, you don't maybe not, don't break the bankroll, but you buy the best thing your paycheck can afford. When you get that engagement ring, you're stretching your budget because you love her. But you can tell uh, when love dries up, so does excellence. Amen. That's how I know how much the American church doesn't love Jesus. Joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. If you, if you have joy about you, you'll always do it excellent. It never becomes a burden. It never becomes a fatiguing thing. You're just excited to do things the best possible. It, it becomes an exciting realm of promotion. The Lord gives you the cool things to do because he knows you're going to do them with excellence. You need to realize that all of your works ought to be a testimony that challenges other Christians to do better. You, you and I are to be living epistles that people read and they can be discipled by our lifestyle. And they say, man, look at how well they do it. We need to do it that good. Look at how beautiful that marriage is. We need to have a marriage that beautiful. We need to be able to do that with everything we do. Provoke one another with giving. Uh, with our kids wing thing, uh, we, you know, we, we challenge for months on to give and to stretch ourselves. And I don't ever see what people give because I don't want to know. But I could see where we were in the standings because, you know, top 10 givers towards the kids wing. And I was like, I'm going to be number one. And then this one family started pulling away. And I was like, I'm going to do my best to be number one. Man, where are they getting that money from? They are really giving a lot of money. And so finally, because they were provoking me, because you get, you get into this contagious season of faith and giving, and there's a faith that just, it's not, it's not all the time, it's in seasons as the Lord anoints it, and the money just starts pouring in to give for this kingdom. So finally the race was done, and uh, my wife and I, we came in number two on Kids Wing Giving. The... the Kingdom treasure chest came in number six. So that was the sixth biggest giver to the kids wing. So I said, honey, I want to know who number one was. She said, seriously? I said, I want to know who beat us. And she said, she told me the family was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> never again. <laughs> never again. It was a joy. I mean, I have never thrown so much money at the kingdom, but it was a joy. And I like stuff like you do, and I got stuff I can spend it on, but you just get into it. You just, you want to give. When you got that joy about you, it's not a burden at all. You just give excellent offerings. You give excellent ability. You're just excited to, to give whatever the Lord needs. He said to Cain in Genesis 4, 7, if thou doest well, which is translated joyfully, 
Will, will you not also be accepted? Joy is a necessary ingredient to make your work excellent. It could be perfect, but if it's with an attitude, God don't want it. You know, I, I like little kisses from my girl, but if I have to force her to give me a kiss, it ain't worth it. If it's with an attitude, it, it's not worth it. It's not an excellent kiss. It's the, it's the attitude that makes it excellent. Faith-filled attitude. This is what we have around here. We are well able to do this. Michael Dingwall, as you know, is our computer guru. He has pioneered so much of the videos that we make. And we, we are, I think we make probably the highest caliber of Christian videos of anybody I know. I don't know anybody doing CGI other than Big Idea and, and Bob the Tomato, but they've been doing that for 20 years. But we're already catching up with them pretty quick. We don't have the resources or the time to do things like they do, but we're doing other stuff. But Michael Dingwall learned years ago, never tell me you don't know how. I don't expect you to know how. I expect you to figure it out. If I got a vision for it, make it happen. And it has built his faith so much. There's nothing he can't do. Every project we do stretches him even more. And he figures it out. And I have no idea how he does it. But it's just God. It's absolutely God. That's, that's for excellence. We are well able to do this. Uh, I'm asking you to do it because I don't know how to do it. So we're both in the same boat. So pick up an oar and row because we're going to figure out how to do it because God said do it. Look unto Jesus in all things. He's our standard. That's how you do excellent stuff. Look unto Jesus. Schmidt, told me one time, he shared something pretty powerful with me. He said, I used to think you were hard, pastor, that you preached a hard standard till I realized you're not Jesus. So your standard's never going to be as high as Jesus. And if I think your standard is hard and high, how much higher is Jesus' standard? And how much harder did he preach to get people there? Amen. I remind folks, I may be a hard preacher, but they killed Jesus for his messages. <laughs> it was the church folks that killed Jesus. They complained that his preaching was too hard. He was always confronting their sin. Faithfulness, this is a fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness makes for excellence. How can you be excellent if you don't show up? Faithfulness versus faithless. Dependability. You can't promote somebody you can't depend on. Keeping your word, timeliness. How about this? What if your salvation was dependent upon your church attendance? How many of you would go to heaven? What if you had to have like a 90% attendance rate? Even in college, they, they flunk you once you miss so many. I just heard a story about a local judge who just put a woman in jail because she wouldn't take her kindergartner to kindergarten. He said, and he told, he told the girl this, woman came all dressed with a business suit thinking she's going to impress the, the judge. The judge said, I told you if you came back in here, I was putting you in prison or jail. She said, you can't put me in jail. He said, I most certainly can. I told you if you don't get your child into school, you're going to jail. You're going to jail for 10 days. And if you don't love your daughter enough to raise her, the upper Cumberland is full of people that love your daughter and they'll raise her for you. That's harsh, but that's a righteous judge. Dependability. They'll even call you and take you to jail if your kids miss too many days at school. What happens if you don't keep your kids in church? You're teaching them God's not important. You're teaching them to be just as carnal as you. You'll send your kids to hell following your lame example. Dependability. Keeping your word. Timeliness. Keeping your word is of utmost importance. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. A righteous man swears to his own hurt and changes not. And then finally, organization. This region needs like mandatory organization classes. 
God is an organized God, right? Six days of creation, then a rest day. And the world still runs on a seven-day calendar. Pretty amazing. The Bible says that part of Genesis written by Moses is about four or 5,000 years old. And the earth still runs on a seven-day week with every four years a leap day to account for the, the, uh, the cosmotic variables of the uh, calendar. Actually, the Jews run on a 28-day calendar, four seven-day weeks. So the Jewish calendar is different than ours. We went to a 365-day of the Gregorian calendar. Seven days. Then you had Noah's Ark. He knew exactly how big he wanted that thing. He was specific. Then there was Moses' tabernacle. He knew exactly what stones he wanted placed where and what kind of silk material and what color he wanted it. He was organized and disciplined. And they had a budget so they knew when we had more than enough to build the tabernacle. Solomon's temple, they knew exactly how much would be needed and we know exactly how many people worked on it. Then you have the church. Look at how organized the church is. There's full-time ministers. Then there's bishops and there's elders and there's deacons. And then everything's decently in order. God is not the author of confusion but of peace. Sin and the devil bring chaos, disorder, and confusion. Hopefully your life isn't defined by those three because if it is, you know who's visiting your home more than Jesus is. If your family, your business, your money, your body is defined by chaos, disorder, and confusion, you know what spirit you're yielding to, the spirit of the world. But God is the author of peace and love and joy. Health can be defined as order in the body, Sickness can be described as chaos in the body. God is the author of peace and order. These are things that make for excellence. And so we must strive for them. If you want to know the biggest cultural thing the kingdom of God rails against in this region, it is poverty and religion. It is a stubborn, selfish poverty based on pride and laziness. And it's fed by religiosity. If you know that that's what we lean against here, you can lean against it and not succumb to it. The the thing is, I come across as a harder preacher because laziness doesn't like anything confronting it. You know, when you don't get your kids up in the morning, you yell at them. That's pretty terrifying. When the coach is having to get the team to work hard, he's got to yell at them. Laziness requires yelling and cattle prodding and shock therapy, water hoses, maybe an attack dog. None of that's pleasant. Just about every other sin can be dealt with just through teaching and preaching. But laziness, man, you got to yell. Cephas had a wonderful message a couple, about two years ago. He talked about basically the condemning catch-22 of overcoming laziness when you're lazy. How do you beat laziness when you're lazy? I mean, you can beat anything as long as you're not lazy. How do you beat lazy when you're lazy? Because to beat something, you've got to be fervent. And so he taught on it. That would be one of those good CDs to listen to and not think that he was just practicing. Amen. Father, I thank you for these awesome lessons today and that they help build our church. I ask you, Lord, to bless our time here, to bless these future pod schools as they go out and are heard around the world. Help us, Lord, to build a stronger army of helps here so that the saints of God feel safe and secure. Father, these folks are entering in the ranks of God and the ranks of the ministry of helps. May they catch it and hear it. May they be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.